Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. In this discussion with Dr. Jonathan Evans, we will talk about caring for human beings with dementia. Hi, I'm Lori Smetanko with the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, and welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. A key component for providing quality care and ensuring quality of life for any resident of a long-term care facility is knowing the person, for example, knowing their likes and dislikes and their life history. This is especially true for a person living with a cognitive impairment such as dementia, where the disease, as the disease progresses, their ability to communicate and engage with others can take different forms. We frequently hear about incidences of conflict between residents with dementia and staff or other residents, and too often we see the response to what some consider challenging behaviors to be prescribing an antipsychotic or psychotropic drug to calm the person down. But there are successful practices for knowing the person and providing good care without drugs, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Our special guest is Dr. Jonathan Evans, a geriatrician, board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and hospitality hospice and palliative medicine. A longtime medical director and educator, Dr. Evans is a past president of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute Long-Term Care, and has held numerous faculty positions at the University of Virginia. Dr. Evans is a strong proponent of person-centered care and the importance of relationships in the provision of care. He considers the details of a person's life story as essential as medical history. Dr. Evans is president-elect of the Consumer Voices Governing Board. And welcome, Dr. Evans. We're really glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and I just want to support all the folks that are listening in and tell you what a difference you make in the world. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. So as we're thinking about the topic for today, we know that more than half of residents in nursing homes and an increasing number in assisted living facilities are living with dementia. So can you talk for just a minute about the diagnosis and the care needs that arise with a person who has dementia or cognitive impairment? Yeah, so and of course, the, the vocabulary is a little bit confusing, but um, when we talk about dementia, what we're talking about is any condition that results in a loss of brain function that's bad enough to interfere with daily activities. In addition, we're talking about a condition that's expected to be permanent and maybe fairly stable over time, but is often slowly progressive. Mm -hmm. There are lots of different uh, types or flavors, if you will, of dementia. You hear about Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia and Pick's disease and frontal lobe dementia and any any number of others. Um, But really, they're just referring to specific aspects of different conditions uh, that are characterized by this essentially persistent and presumably permanent loss of the ability to use your brain the way that you once did, that is bad enough that it interferes with your ability to do certain things on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so as you think about you know, the care needs that arise as um, the brain function changes and the ability to, you know, um, to uh, make 
different decisions for yourself or even to, you know, be aware of your surroundings as, you know, cognitive impairment increases, what are some of the care needs that arise for some of the individuals and how do we think about, you know, approaching care for them? Sure. And the, the, um, now this, the, when we talk about dementia, we're typically talking about conditions that uh, last for years and they tend you know they they are they're sneaky. They can come. They can be very insidious and not obvious for quite some time because the problems they cause can be quite subtle, and individuals are able to compensate uh, even without necessarily trying to. But uh, by and large, the kinds of problems that people might encounter if they're living with dementia are some difficulty to comprehend their world or to communicate. So, for example, uh, oftentimes uh, people may experience problems with short-term memory. That's that's a very dominant feature for many folks. It may result in um, not being aware of one's um, surroundings or you know what day it is or time and so forth. Maybe being uh, confused about uh, relationships, being able to recognize individuals, essentially forgetting who certain people are to some extent, Mm -hmm. forgetting names and that sort of stuff, which everybody experiences, but is is worse than people who have dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as a consequence of these, and when we talk, when I'm talking about impairments, I'm talking about the, essentially the loss of ability to do certain things. Okay. Um, Each of those impairments can cause Problems of one sort or another. For example, if you have a problem with short-term memory and you're cooking something and you step away from the stove, you may forget that you were cooking something and therefore not go back and that could res- increase the risk of a fire or, or something like that. If okay. you, um, uh, similarly, if you get disoriented or have trouble with short-term memory and you're driving, you may, you may get disoriented and not realize where you are, how to get back to where you're going if you're in an unfamiliar area uh-huh. or something like that. Um, and, uh, and, more, uh, and so people with, that are living with dementia are, are gonna have more difficulty in unfamiliar circumstances. And I might add that if you think about dementia as some loss of brain power under other circumstances where a person becomes ill for any reason or is taking medications that might affect the brain, then people may experience a sudden decline in brain function, even though their underlying dementia hasn't really changed much, but other things have caused them to decompensate. So as a consequence, people living with dementia may have more difficulty if if they get ill or end up in a hospital or some other unfamiliar setting. Uh Um, And, uh, you know, one of the big concerns for people living with dementia is safety. Um, If, you know, because, it may be difficult to recognize risky or unsafe situations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I know, you know, as we've talked about before, um, having a, a person um, whose dementia is progressing often have difficulty um, verbally communicating with um, other people or making their wishes known to other people, um, particularly verbally. And that often um causes some conflict with caregivers who may not understand what the person is trying to tell them. Um, And so we often 
hear that staff get frustrated with residents with dementia who don't, you know, behave in a certain way, you know, using air quotes. Um, sometimes it's they're resisting care or, you know, pushing back or biting or scratching at someone, you know, essentially, you know, almost seems like they're trying to defend themselves against a, you know, a particular action. Um, and so, you know, what do you say to, you know, people who are experiencing um, those types of interactions with people with dementia? And um, how can we best, you know, think about how we um, approach um, someone who may not be able to verbally communicate with you and um, and still, you know, try to understand what they're um, saying to you and, um, and to provide good care for that person? Yeah, that's, that's really an excellent question. The, um, well, first off, um, just talking about words for a moment, there have been a number of studies over many, many years, as well as studies of, of well-known individuals, you know, famous writers, for example, uh, presidents and so forth, where they've kind of looked over their writings and speeches and so forth. And they found that over a period of many years, uh, even, you know, preceding the diagnosis of dementia, that the vocabulary gets smaller and smaller. So that's kind of an early feature. And when, if people's vocabulary decreases, then their ability to communicate with words is somewhat diminished. Um, and of course, the, the opposite, the, the reverse of that is that uh, if people's vocabulary is diminished, then their ability to comprehend words or communicate or understand other people's communication is often diminished. You know, think about when you're, if you're in school trying to learn a second language, for example, uh-huh. or if you're in a country where you're, you're you know, there's a the native language is not one that you speak very well. The ability to communicate is, is quite limited when you don't have as many words at your disposal. And as a consequence, we tend to communicate through behavior. Or think about a, a young child who's just developing their, their ability, their vocabulary and their ability to speak with words. More and more, most often the behavior is the, is, the, is the primary form of communication. So to your point, the scenarios that you described are each examples of somebody telling somebody something without words. Um, uh, as you mentioned, they might be expressing that they're frightened. And the other thing I would point out that all of those situations or all of those behaviors that you're describing really represent a, someone who's living with dementia um, per, perceiving or perhaps misperceiving a threat and responding in really kind of a reflexive way, the way any of us would if we were feeling threatened for some reason, okay? As an example, you know, if you were, um, you know, asleep in your own bed and someone turned the lights on and and started touching you or pulling at your clothes, you know, that would be a very threatening threatening situation and you would automatically respond to protect yourself. Right. Possibly even by, you know, hitting out or something like that. Um, that's just, you know, a reflex. You don't, even, you, don't, you don't even, not only do you not have to think about it, you don't even have time to think about it. And so, right. but in a, in a healthcare setting, that's misperceived as um, resisting care. So, so a lot of what, of these situations that you described really represent a conflict between the, in, in, the individual living with dementia and their environment, especially the human environment. And it represents a healthcare culture that's, really um, most exemplified by hospitals, but nursing homes were, you know, were envisioned and created 
based on a hospital model. And, the, and when you consider that most medical and nursing training is hospital-based, the culture of healthcare and care delivery in all settings is, is based on that culture. And, and so just a, a couple aspects of that culture I'll just mention and then I'll tie it into some of these, these situations that you described is that um, the healthcare culture is really pretty rigid and inflexible, especially in the hospital. Individual patients are expected to comprehend and conform to the environment. You're in the hospital, for example, you're supposed to stay in your bed unless somebody, you know, unless somebody tells you to get up. You're not even supposed to go to the bathroom without pushing a call bell or something like that, which is not normal for folks. In addition to that, you're expected to let people whom you don't know do things to you, like stick needles in your arm and, and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, which, um, you know, or even, you know, undress you in some way or, you know, touch a part of your body that you've been trained your whole life, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do it. So mm-hmm. in, in other words, for, for us as consumers of healthcare to receive healthcare, we have to basically overcome, at least temporarily, um, our training as human beings and let people do things that we've been taught not to. Okay, but when people are living with dementia, they they often can't make that distinction, and they're just relying on what we'll call this overlearned behavior, which is what they've been taught their whole life. And the other thing I would just point out is that um, you know our healthcare system is what I would refer to as quote complaint based, meaning in order for you to get healthcare, you have to ask for what you want, you have to know what you want. Okay, and people living with dementia may not know that they may not or they may not remember that, you know, they're um, not supposed, you know, let's say they had surgery or, you know, broken hip or something, they may not know that they're not supposed to stand on their broken leg, you know, Uh and so they might end up trying to get up and injuring themselves and so forth. Um, Or they may, you know, be unsteady and, you know, have to get up to go to the bathroom, which is a totally normal thing in the middle of the night, perhaps. And yet, um, without remembering to ask somebody for help, okay? Um, and the other thing is that the, if you think about how care is provided in a hospital, especially, I'm using this as an example just because it's sort of the extreme of healthcare. Um, it's mostly about, quote, task performance, people doing certain things to or for somebody versus what's really needed for people living with dementia, based on what we talked about earlier, is really, more ongoing supervision and engagement, okay? So the, so typically if you were in a hospital, for example, people would come in and out of your room to do things or check on things, but if there wasn't a task to perform, there wouldn't be anybody else in the room with you. And, and, and that model of care delivery is the same in nursing homes and, and other settings as well, including assisted living, where um, the individuals that the, the resident or the patient may come in contact with are um, they have a job to do for a number of people. They're trying to do it as efficiently as possible in the COVID era. They're often doing it without a lot of help because there's, you know, this healthcare crisis has resulted in a lot of, um, you know, care shortages really. Uh, And so you have increasingly stressed uh, caregivers who are, and including family members for that matter, Uh who have things that they need to get done with a limited amount of time. They're often uh, frustrated and in a hurry. And when they come, when they enter a room, they express that frustration or hurry without words, okay, Mm -hmm. by by rushing in or so forth. And that in and of itself is perceived as threatening or, you know, or scary. And as a consequence, 
any of us would react in the same way, which is to be, just to feel anxious or threatened and be, be on our guard and possibly uh, react to things that we consider especially threatening, like people doing unfamiliar things to us. Mm-hmm. So, so what I'm trying to say here is that all these behaviors that you just described, and I've got a list of more, are really, they're not planned in advance. They're not a feature of disease per se. They're normal reactions to perceived threats, okay? Um, and they're, you know, they're kind of reflexive behavior. And so, in other words, those behaviors that we're talking about, they're expected. They're, okay. if you will, normal given the circumstances. And what is what they're reacting to is the behavior of others. And it's those others, caregivers or you know, other healthcare professionals, that um, are in complete control of the situation, even though they often feel helpless and out of control because mm-hmm. it's their behavior or it's, or it's what they're doing that's prompting this reaction. So mm-hmm. in order to prevent these situations, in order to um, de-escalate them, it requires people to have some awareness of themselves, okay? And, and, and really just kind of step back and forget about this artificial world of healthcare and just think about the world that human beings inhabit and how, you know, how we relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Moreover, we, t- we talked about, you know, behavior as communication. Okay. Right. It's not, it's not a disease or anything. It's not something you make go away with a medicine that doesn't work. Uh, but I would point out that most of us rely way more on the nonverbal communication Mm-hmm. to help us figure out what's going on than the words themselves. And, I, and, I, and it's been a lifelong lament of mine that unfortunately the words often get in the way of what I'm trying to say. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, you know, and when people have fewer words at their disposal, the words themselves lose precision. And so we, we attribute meaning, we attribute a specific meaning to a word that may not be what's intended. And that results in more confusion and more misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And too often, you know, as you and I have talked about before, the the misunderstanding or the the reactive um, behavior that the individual gives when you know they're either um, when uh, they're not liking the the actions being done to them um, are often treated, you know, in a way where the where the the caregiver or the the staff will say, "Well, we need to calm that person down and um, yes. give them a drug or something to to calm them down." And um, and and that's been very problematic historically. Um, and it's it doesn't really get at treating the need of that person or or addressing what it is that they're trying to tell you. Absolutely, and you make a really important point. Um, I, I would just emphasize uh, sort of underscore what you're saying by pointing out that and I'm talking about the training that doctors and nurses get and the, again the healthcare culture that if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail okay and you know doctors are taught to prescribe medicines in response to symptoms if I if I were in front of a group of doctors and I played this game where I hollered out a symptom nausea for example people would yell out their favorite their preferred drug to treat nausea. You know that's how that's how medicine is practiced in in this country to, to some extent, and that's often what's expected. And if you walk into a you know a drugstore and you, there are rows and rows of over-the-counter medicines, you can you can just simply match up whatever symptom you're having with whatever's for sale. So mm-hmm. that's a big part of our culture, but it it 
you know, treatment, first of all, treating symptoms doesn't treat the underlying problem necessarily that's causing the symptom. And sometimes it actually inadvertently makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, any medicine that might be used to try to treat quote behavior at its, you know, in order for that medicine to work in any way, shape or form is, is going to have to work, is gonna to have to affect the brain. And if you give somebody a medicine to affect the brain, and, and let's be clear, we're talking about slowing down the brain, okay? Then it's gonna cause other problems with brain function. And as I mentioned at the beginning, people who are living with dementia have a, a condition that affects their brain that reduces their, if you will, the reserve capacity of the brain. And when you start adding medicines to that, very often it's, it, it causes the brain to decompensate in other ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, in it, so it sometimes makes, it, it often makes the situation worse, but even if it doesn't, um, it, it often causes other problems or risk of other problems, including death, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and I might also add that, you know, if there was a medicine out there um, that worked to make a person not react in a reflexive way to situations, that would, ha- you know, in order for that to be effective, by and large, you would have to suppress the brain function mm. pretty severely in such a way that you could expect that people are going to have other consequences, most often sedation and you know, lethargy and more confusion and so forth. And mm-hmm. if, if, you, if the problem, if you will, is caused by confusion and you make somebody more confused, you've just made the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it, sure. it's, it, it's a, you know, it's I, when I hear about, or when, and I hear about this all the time, people calling and asking me for a medicine and so forth. What I hear is somebody who's frustrated, okay, who doesn't know what to do, who feels powerless. And, um, and so the way that I respond to that is by helping people understand the situation, trying to figure out what folks are reacting to, you know, my patients, and also what are they trying to tell us with their behavior and, and you know, trying to help um, caregivers take a broader view of the situation. And oftentimes it's such an emotionally charged situation when people are feeling frustrated that sometimes it's just a matter of stepping away for a few minutes um, because people who are, live with dementia often have problems with short-term memory, they very quickly often forget what it was that caused them to be uh, feeling threatened. And so if people just step away for even a few moments, that's often all that's needed to kind of start over with a fresh start and you know, with no, no hard feelings. Um, mm-hmm. So, but there's also a misunderstanding among many healthcare professionals, even if they understand that someone has a listed diagnosis, in the heat of the moment, it's hard for people to comprehend that, you know, this person can't help it. You know, this is mm-hmm. just a reflexive behavior. And particularly with adults, that's difficult. With children who exhibit the exact same behaviors, um, the same caregivers often have a very different response because they see it, they see the behaviors as normal and typical for a young child uh, under the circumstances. And they might say, well, they're tired or they're, or whatever, you know, they, they can, they can understand and they can forgive and they can move on rather than persisting and trying to do something in spite of that person. So for example, whenever I hear about a phrase like resisting care, uh, to me, I think about that in terms of abuse. Okay. I think here's somebody who's trying to overpower somebody. And um, and those situations cause me a great deal of personal distress Uh because uh, that should never happen. Uh What that, what that patient is saying is stop. Okay, and and uh, and um, that's what the message that I want people I work with to understand. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So as we think about, you know, um, so for the caregiver who, um, as you're saying, is, you know, being uh, is presented with, you know, these different reactions and different behaviors. What I heard you say was oftentimes they need to think about not only um, their their own approach to how they are presenting to that person or um, how they're approaching the individual themselves, but also, you know, think about the reaction that they're having and, and don't you know, keep pushing forward and trying to overpower them, but, you know, take a step back. So it's really kind of rethinking, um, you know, how they're starting to, to approach that person to provide whatever care or service or task it is that they're supposed to be providing. And actually, I think about um, my grandmother uh, had dementia and lived in a long-term care facility. And I remember being with her one day and a, an aide came in to um, help uh, brush her teeth. And she approached her with one of those um, pink tipped swabby things, you For know, sure. that she was going to, you know, try to clean her mouth out. And she went at her and she just kind of shoved that, you know, in her mouth and started really aggressively <clears throat> moving it around. And of course, my grandmother just started, you know, again, you know, pushing back at her and resisting. And, you know, we had to say to her, you know, you need to stop, you know, be more gentle when you're yeah. approaching and when you're coming to her to, to provide that care to her. Um, but that, you know, uh, that seemed, you know, like a perfect example of what you're talking about Absolutely. here, where, you know, the approach um, impacts the reaction that you're going to get. Absolutely. That's a great example. Um, and, I want to talk about that specific example a little more if you'll indulge me. Um, but, but just let me just back up a sec second and say um, the way that these caregivers are approaching things is generally speaking the way they've been taught. Uh, mm -hmm. al although we've been taught to, you know, in, in healthcare, we've been taught to do things that are often the opposite of what we've been taught to do as you know earlier in our lives by the people you know by teachers and the other people that we love uh, and most everything that a person needs to know about caring for somebody with dementia they have within them and they they've they it's, it's how they were taught to live um, so but i understand all too well how frustrating it is when you are trying to get a task done and the person you're trying to help is, is not letting you. I mean, my grandmother lived with dementia for many years. She um, wouldn't let anybody trim her toenails, you know, and, uh, and I would come visit her and try to trim her nails. And sometimes I can only trim one, you know, uh, sometimes I could trim one and she would tell me that was enough. And then sometime later I would trim another one, but it, you know, it, would, it could potentially take an hour to trim her toenails, which, you know, from a practical standpoint, isn't going to happen in most healthcare settings. Now, the example you gave of your grandmother uh, is a perfect one because um, you think about it, somebody's coming at her with an object and, and there's other changes with vision that people with dementia often experience to get sort of like a tunnel vision. But, but basically someone is trying to shove something in her mouth and it, that, that appears threatening. She doesn't know mm -hmm. what it is. It's coming at her faster than she can process. The irony of that situation is, uh, and I'm willing to bet that there was nothing wrong with your grandmother's arms or her, mm -hmm. her ability to use her arms. Okay. That's right. And so there's no reason why she couldn't have held it herself. Okay. And a, 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 a specific example of how you might help somebody brush their teeth or brush their hair if they're living with dementia is to put it in their hand, 
tell them what it is, break things down step by step, have them try, guide their arm. That's much less threatening than, you know, sticking somebody, something in their mouth. Imagine that if I was going to try to brush a patient's hair, I'm standing there sitting, I'm standing over them with an object in my hand, I'm raising it over their head, they might perceive that I might, I'm, I'm about to hit them or something like that. But if mm -hmm. I simply put that in their hand, maybe had them touch it with the other hand so they could understand what it was and then help them to stroke their hair a few times, then that's often all they need to kind of get things going. Now, uh, there is a, you know, I, I, without getting too technical here, one of the problems with dementia is a, a loss of so-called executive brain function where one part of the brain, which is supposed to tell other parts of the brain what to do, uh, doesn't work very well. And so people often have difficulty performing tasks for themselves mm -hmm. that require multiple steps. So for example, uh, brushing your teeth. Well, you have to you know, take a toothbrush, put some toothpaste on it. You, know, you have to pick up the toothbrush with your hand. You have to pick up the toothpaste, put the toothpaste on the toothbrush, move that object, move the toothpaste, toothbrush to your mouth. And then you need to move it in certain ways. And all those things, Every, every, the more steps are in a process, the more opportunities there are for things to sort of break down. But if you try to help people by doing things step by step or explaining what you're doing, it helps individuals uh, do things for themselves with, with some lesser degree of assistance and it helps them feel more capable. And it also shows caregivers, hey, this is still a functioning human being, you know, and there's, you know, there's, value and meaning in doing things for yourself okay uh -huh. so uh but again it's it in in our in our haste and um you know in our sort of laser focus on getting the job done we are often unaware of or lose sight of these all these other things that are going on you know yeah and i think that i think that's really important and and so you know certainly you know the way you approach um the person and and you know observing their reactions and and thinking through you know a different approach um to being you know more uh gentle and um and you know again empowering them as much as you can definitely are um important aspects can we can we talk um also for a minute in terms of like understanding communication and behavior and what the person is trying to tell you for situations sure. that we often hear about where, um, you know, maybe a person is, you know, wandering in other people's rooms or, sure. um, or, you know, re reacting, um, maybe, uh, in, in some other different way where it, it's almost like they're looking for something or they're, um, they're having some other reaction or behavior that it might be, you know, again, air quoting bothersome to sure. other residents around them or other staff. And um, again, that often causes a misunderstanding with what they're trying to communicate to people if they're not, you know, kind of knowing what that person is trying to say. Absolutely. And, and I should mention first that in almost any care setting, or certainly in any nursing home, despite the fact that individual staff may have difficulty comprehending this and may, you know, inadvertently cause conflict with the resident, whatever problem you might encounter or you may hear about, chances are there's somebody else involved in the care of that person who actually gets it, okay, mm -hmm. who's successful. You know, it's just that the communication between shifts and, you know, so forth isn't, you know, isn't very good. And so uh, in, in all healthcare settings. So that um, 
oftentimes it's simply a matter of figuring out what is working and replicating that. Now, in the situation described like with wandering, um, I, I might just point out that you know, wandering or whatever you want to call that is, is basically normal. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I wander all the time. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, but it's, it's, we're talking about here, resisting care, wandering, agitation, and so forth. Somebody is making a judgment about what somebody else's intentions are. Okay. Yep. And, um, and, and there, those judgments are, are often incorrect. Most often they're incorrect, but also my job isn't to judge people. My job is to love and care for people. And, and the judging stuff just gets in the way. And I, I venture to say that most human beings don't like to be judged, especially uh, without their knowledge or consent. So, uh, and it becomes unfortunately self-fulfilling. So th let's take the wandering example, okay? Supposing wandering means going into a place you're not supposed to, like somebody else's room. Well, why would somebody do that? Um, I ask this question of nurses and doctors, including and especially in hospitals all the time. I say, well, have you ever gone in the wrong patient's room? Of course, you know, yeah. well, what medicine did you get prescribed for that? You know, you know, have you, you know, have, you know um, why did you go in the wrong patient's room? Well, because the rooms all look alike, okay? Uh, did you ever actually talk to the wrong person? Yes. Well, why did you do that? Well, because the patients look alike. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, I'm just pointing out the absurdity, absurdity uh -huh. of this. Um, but think about, put yourself in the shoes of, of somebody living with dementia in a set, in a healthcare setting where they're not sh quite sure where they are. They're, they don't quite comprehend the environment. But wherever they are, let, let's assume for the sake of argument, they consider that to be their home. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, they don't, they're not thinking to, my, to themselves, well, in my home, I'm only allowed to go in certain rooms. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, it's all their home. Moreover, let's say somebody leaves their room and tries to find their way back. Well, how are they going to know it's their room, especially if all the rooms look alike, especially if there's no obvious visual um, stimulus, you know, a picture of them or something like that to something familiar that would attract them, okay? This is the very reason why people do things like uh, walk through a door that's, you know, the, uh, uh, that they're not supposed to because there's a big uh, red sign that says exit, okay? Right. Or even pulling a fire alarm where in big words it says pull, but in small words it says in case of emergency, you know? Right, uh, right. And so, you know, people are just responding to a, a, a stimulus in their environment. They're trying to find their way. They're trying to be helpful, okay, uh, be successful. And so, you know, we're talking about physical environments that were not made for people who might be confused, uh, that expect way too much of the people that inhabit them or that work in them, okay? And, and there's no reason why we couldn't make it very easy for every resident, for every, for every patient, for every doctor, and for every nurse to easily be able to identify whose room is whose and who and 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 which and what person you know who's whom and what their role is okay mm -hmm. and you see that sometimes in hospitals where they they use these in nursing homes too where they're using bigger badges with bigger letters that identify that someone's a nurse for example um in some uh spaces that were designed specifically for people with living with dementia often provide visual cues to help people find their room, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, but, but so, I mean, the, you know, but the idea that you would, 
that you would need to, you should be medicated because you walked into the wrong room is absurd. You know, what, what often happens though, and this is what tends to make these situations worse, is if people do something that is, what we're really talking about is what is socially unacceptable in a specific environment. If people make a mistake unbeknownst to them and do something that's socially unacceptable in a particular environment, the, the reaction that people get is to be told that they're wrong. Okay. Now, if you've ever done this, if you've ever been in some public space and walked into a room or something, or, you know, or walked through a door that you weren't supposed to, not only would you be told you were wrong, but you might also be made to feel shame. Okay. Not very helpful. But mm -hmm. if you're, if you think you're in your own house and somebody says you can't be in your living room, um, that's going to be completely incomprehensible. And so being told you're wrong in that situation isn't going to write the situation it's not going to change your behavior in a positive way it's just going to cause things to escalate so this concept of telling people they're wrong in medical parlance we would call that reorientation okay it usually doesn't work uh what we want to do instead is help sort of steer people oh oh you know uh, uh you know uh mr jones i i it's good to see you i'm dr evans hey uh, um how are you doing? You know, are, are, can I help you in some way? Do you need something? Um, uh, hey, would you mind, you want to take a walk with me? I'd really love to talk with you. You know, mm -hmm. what I just described, which is sort of steering people in another way, making, you know, them, you know, not, not threatening them or making them feel like they've done anything wrong, but making them feel like I'm somebody that wants to be with them. You know, that's that what I just described is a process which would technically we might call call that redirecting them, or it's like sure. steering. But the term redirection is often misused to mean reorienting. Okay? Mm -hmm. So as a consequence, I tend not to use that phrase because I only pointed out just to know to let you know what it's supposed to mean. But redirecting, in if you ever see that in a medical chart, it generally means somebody was told no. Sure. Okay. And, and, you know, I know that, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that you're a big proponent of knowing the person and how that also sure. really impacts the care that you provide and the way that you approach an individual and, you know, even kind of, you know, playing out the, the, you know, again, air quoted wandering examples. Um, sure. Sometimes, you know, people walk around or wander or are looking for something and something about their history may give you clues about what it is they might even be doing or looking for um, even beyond just, you sure. know, their, it's their home and, you know, they can, they're used to going wherever they want. You know, we've heard lots of examples of people who, you know, like a policeman who used to walk a beat and, you know, so it was his thing to just, that was what he did for 40 years of his life. And so he's out walking around or they might be looking for something, looking for a kitchen or food or something. Um, Absolutely. So knowing the person and their cues um, might also be helpful. Yeah, that's, that's another great point. I mean, we're talking about, um, human beings being purposeful and wanting to have purpose in their lives. And the, the notion that somebody who's moving around in an apparently aimless manner or purposeless manner is wandering is, is usually a, a grave misunderstanding of what's going on. Almost always the person is acting with intention. It's just we, we, they're not using words necessarily to explain what they're after unless we ask them or try to figure that out. And, and very often knowing them as a human being and knowing what their life story can help us figure that out. But, and, and the thing is that um, 
living with dementia doesn't cause people to stop being themselves, okay, mm -hmm. by and large. It doesn't stop them from trying to live, the, do their life's work and live with the same sense of purpose and intentionality. So uh, the more we know what that is, the more we can help them be successful and the more successful we can feel in turn. Uh, and to your point, you know, this is especially common among people who, I mean, I have a patient now who, uh, I mean, I've had many patients who were who were who were nurses their whole worked as nurses their whole lives, or, or work you know or other care providers, and they're in a setting where they see people in wheelchairs and so forth, and it it to them they're at work, you know, and they often right. go about uh, trying to help others around them, which unfortunately can cause them to come into conflict, you know, and so in a situation like that, or this, you know, this policeman example that you gave, you know, rather than leaving them to their own devices and 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 creating situations where they may come into conflict with somebody else why don't we you know acknowledge that purpose and help them achieve it by encouraging them to make rounds having somebody go with them you know and say okay we've we've you know uh, we've done our rounds for the night let's let's do this other thing instead you know in addition to that knowing that they have that purpose you've just created a, a, a solution to essentially any be any conflict, if there's if something else is going on, hey, it's time to make rounds. Would you come with me? Let's go. Let's go check on all the doors or something like mm -hmm. that. You you you've created a solution to other problems by distracting that person from whatever was going on and giving them a purpose, something that they can be successful at. So, um, and then this distraction is another very important and useful. Um, to, um, I hate to say tactic but you know method for um you basically stopping whatever's going on and starting something else with you know a, a fresh start mm -hmm. so um and, and, but in addition to that when you retire there are probably going to be things that you are going to look forward to that you like to do in your life okay maybe bingo is one of them maybe not but certain things that are that are familiar to you that are a source of comfort that give you a sense of accomplishment those are the things that you're going to want to do and so the more people i mean if you need help doing that the more people know you and know what what your interests are know who you are the more likely you are to get what you want and the more likely you are to be happy and fulfilled mm -hmm. and so uh and you would expect that if you move to a retirement community or something like that it, or if you were considering moving to a place and you don't don't have dementia you're just thinking i want to be where i can you know be my best self you would be looking for those things as, as in, in order to help you make your choice about where you want to live mm -hmm. and so those Absolutely. those are those are things that are not only essential but expected uh, in a nursing home. You know, you're, you're, it's expected that there will be individual activities that are individualized to your need, your needs, interests, and abilities. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about a, a lot of, um, you know, I think interesting topics today and approaches for caring for someone with dementia and, you know, certainly including um, thinking about the way you approach um, that person and the way you're providing care to them. Um, the fact that often the different behaviors and reactions to things that 
uh, the way that they may respond to you is is a form of communication and and that you really need to be paying attention to what that is and and also how important knowing the person is um, in terms of your approach and in terms of again what they're trying to communicate what they're trying to get across to you and again how you approach them and provide care that can help reduce any sort of conflict um, or uh, behaviors that, you know, again, people think are, um, may think are problematic, but are just um, something that the person is trying to tell you that either they need or they want to be doing. Um, and, and you can think about better ways to approach that. Um, other things that you may want to, you know, tell our listeners for today, Dr. Evans? Well, I, 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 as you were talking, I, I thought of an example that to me sort of illustrates a, a, a kind of a, it's a fairly simple way of for people to comprehend sometimes this clash of cultures, but also what a, what a big difference a very small change can make, even in just the words that we use. For example, one of the most uh, uh, frequently used terms that I see uh, either in medical records or in you know, discussing and talking with you know, healthcare professionals is this phrase agitation. Uh-huh. This person is agitated. Now, people that aren't in healthcare almost never use that word. It's kind of pejorative and so forth. But it, it has this sort of medical sort of aura to it. So that if I were to call uh, somebody's daughter and say, oh, your, your mother's agitated. Oh, that sounds bad. Well, what should we do? Well, we, oh, I've, I've got this medicine that we could try and so forth. Well, as any side effect, well, it, it could cause death. But, you know, this is serious. This is agitation, you know. Um, if on the other hand, I said, because again, agitation is a, a subjective um, judgment that's, that one person makes about another in terms of what they're doing and what their intention is. If instead I said, your mom is visibly upset, that would, that would be, create a totally different set of expectations and a totally right. different conversation. My mom's upset, what is she upset about? Well, I don't know, but I'd like to give her a medicine anyway. It doesn't matter what she's upset about, okay? She needs to conform to the environment, okay? And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm in my own little crusade. I'm trying to purge some of these words that's where the, the word gets in the way of what's going on or what, what the meaning is. And so if you've ever heard the term agitation or if you ever hear it again, just substitute in your mind visibly upset. And if I say that to a caregiver, well, she's visibly upset what could she be upset about? Then we can start right. problem solving. Oh, exactly. what, might, what might be going on that could cause uh, that? And, and again, the other thing that I would just mention to everybody that's participating is that, you know, people who choose to care for other human beings, you know, for their life's work, it's part of who they are. They want to do a good job, okay? Mm-hmm. They're generally doing what they've been taught to do. And they often feel a tremendous amount of uh, frustration, pressure, uh, conflict between what they want to do and, and what they're able to do. Okay. And um, it, one of the most gratifying things is seeing, you know, caregivers being able to view these sort of things with, without this sort of medical, distorted medical lens and just look, thinking about human beings and, and what they're trying to say. And it, it can be very empowering instead of being frustrating when they feel like what's needed is a medication and I won't give it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, and if you're a family member or ombudsman and you're, you're um, 
you know, you're, you're probably the expert on this, on this person whom you, whom you care about and what you know about that person, what you can share with others or, or just, you know, being a guide through some of this problem solving can really make a difference, not only for the person that you love, but for the other people who are trying to take care of them and want to do, really want to do a good job. You know, no, everybody, nobody goes to work wanting to do a bad job. We all want right. to be successful, but we don't always have the tools at our disposal. And in addition to that, you know, what, what human beings most need, generally speaking, is, is presence, is, is, the, is, the, is relationships with other people. It's not so much the words that we say it's, it, or the tasks that we do, it's, it's being there, you know? And so, um, you know, but for people who work in healthcare settings, they often feel like they don't have that permission. And one of the things you can do is to not only give them, you can give them permission by thanking them for doing that. If you keep mm -hmm. catching people in the act of doing things the right way, you know? And uh, so I, I, I again, I, I just wanna finish where I started, which is to thank each of you and all of you for being the person that you are and never underestimate the difference that you make in the world. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for some great words of wisdom and tips today, both for caregivers and for family members as they think about how to best provide care for their loved one, for the person that they're caring for um, in a manner that I think respects the person and is done with kindness and care and love and compassion, um, as you so often talk about. Um, and, and also in a way to think about um, really keeping centered around what it is that the person needs and what they're trying to tell you um, and to try to best meet those needs. Um, so that's, I think it's been a very, um, lots of great tips that you've been able to provide today. I will um, just tell our listeners that they can get a lot more information about some of the things that we talked today about on the Consumer Voices website at www.theconsumervoice.org, um, particularly related to looking at good care without the use of drugs for um, individuals with uh, with dementia. Um, we have our campaign that we're partnering with AARP Foundation around this issue, and we have a lot of great resources on our website about that. So Dr. Evans, I'd love to thank you for spending the time with us today and for um, imparting your great words of wisdom, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, and thank you all for letting me share the journey with you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.